This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Scott Sochner. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Sportacast. I got to say, Evan, I'm a little disappointed. I thought you'd try the Cockney accent. I thought you'd go for a little British accent. <laughs> this is the valuation uh, edition of the Sportacast. You know, and therein why I did not do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm willing to play the fool. That's fine. I don't mind uh, because we are going to start off with Kurt Badenhausen, uh, valuations expert extraordinaire. He put out uh, Sportico's EPL valuations. And this is no surprise. <laughs> There's a big difference between the top and the bottom. Man U, right up top, owned by the Glazer family, owns the Buccaneers, so they know something about a closed system. Uh, $4.65 billion for Man U. Uh, what would you like to lend to the conversation at the start, Mr. Novi Williams? Yeah, I think the certainly the, the big takeaway when you look at this list is the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And the haves are six teams. It's Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal, and Tottenham. The same six teams, Scott, that tried to join the Breakaway Super League uh, about a month ago. Uh, and yes, the Tottenham is, is, is the lowest of those top six. They're valued at $2.85 billion. The, the jump to number seven to Everton at $525 million is a jump of 5x. Uh, that's a wider gap than, than, the, than the, the, the gap between the, the most valuable and least valuable NFL team. Uh, the, the inequality in the EPL is, is pretty, it's, it's stark and, it, and it's wild to see. And going back to that Super League conversation, when you and I, when we recorded that week and talked about how there is already uh, a haves and a have-nots that will probably never change in European soccer, this is exactly what we're talking about. It's the fact that these six teams have so much money, they put more money into players, they will almost never get relegated which is why they're valued like NFL teams as opposed to everybody else who is valued as if they might get relegated at some point because it's possible. Uh, and as a result, you end up with this massive inequality. Now, I am going to take a beginner's approach here because we might have some people listening be like, what do you mean, right? What do you mean relegated? 
Uh, I'm going to go very simple term. If you don't understand relegation, the bottom teams in the EPL, which is the top division of British soccer, if you finish in that bottom, you get sent down to a second league. And every year, the top teams from that second league get promoted to the EPL, where, of course, you make much more money in your media contracts and the like. So that that's why it's really chancy to be at in that bottom third at any time during the EPL season, because there is that threat of relegation and therefore you lose a, a lot of revenue. Uh, I mean, some other stats have been the revenue drop from the number six team to the number seven team. Just the revenue alone from number six to number seven is 50%. The bottom 14 teams are worth a combined $3.7 billion. That's 14 teams combined, 3.7 billion. Meantime, there's Man U at 4.65 all by its lonesome. Burnley, which is last in, in the table of teams that are staying up, so not in the relegation zone. Like They'll be an EPL team next year. Burnley is number 17 on the list, $180 million valuation. So you've got 180 at Burnley at 17, 4.65 billion at Man U. And I ask you, Eben, what if, I mean, what would have to happen? Multiple injuries. What, what would have to happen for Man U, Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea, Tottenham, Arsenal to find themselves in like, uh-oh, late in the season, number 16, 17, 18. Holy cow, could this really happen? I, a lot of things would have to go wrong. I, I, but I would posit that it would that it will never happen. That that the, the financial gap is so big, these teams can afford so many great players that they probably end up sitting on the bench in case there are catastrophic injuries across the board. Uh, in, in the past thirty years, those six teams, there's been one that's been relegated, and it was Man City before Sheikh Mansour bought the team. Uh, so before they became one of the top six clubs, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I mean, we can have a Leicester City that comes out of nowhere and wins the title. We can have a team like it looked like Arsenal was this year that is pretty bad at times. But to have one of those teams end up so bad that they're in the bottom three, I'm not going to say never, but it seems it seems more likely that some kind of financial mishap gets them kicked out, as has happened with clubs in Scotland or clubs in Italy in the past. Um, but yeah, I think the, and, and, and Steve Horowitz, friend of the program, sports banker who does soccer deals left and right, as he says in that story, there's a walled garden there. This is a, a system that is set up to separate these clubs from everybody else. And these clubs are playing financially a fundamentally different game. They are playing a game against the other teams in the Super League, the top teams in Europe. They're not only trying to win the EPL, they're trying to win the Champions League Every year, they are pouring so much of their revenue back into player salaries just to try to keep pace with the Bayerns and the PSGs and the and the Juventuses and the Barcelonas, etc. Uh, whereas the financial calculus for a team like Leeds or a team like Everton, which is you know this this next tier of English teams, is just so so fundamentally different in terms of how they make their money and also how they spend it. All right, challenge to the Horowitz family. Steve or Jake, I know your listeners, who, who text me first saying you heard this. I, I, I'm going to put my money on Steve because he always listens while he's out cycling. So, you know, that, that's a challenge to Jake. Let's see. Um, I hope Nate Silver is listening also because I'd be curious then, what do you think the odds are? All right, I mean, I mean you, just, you just staked your case as to why. But what is more likely to happen? One of those teams being relegated or Leicester winning the championship? I think it Which has to we be know did happen. Yeah, it's happened in the last five years, right? So right, I think right, by, by exactly. virtue of that, it so, has to be more, more likely, yeah. So, I mean, just to put into, by the way, perspective for the U.S. teams, you hinted at it, but 
the the difference in valuation from top to bottom. MLB is Yankees and Marlins, 4X. Knicks and Pelicans in the NBA, also 4X. NFL, Cowboys, Bengals, 3X. And yet, in the meantime, here we are talking about the EPL. We've got 4.65 billion, and then Burnley wants to get at 17 at 180 million. That's more than 4X. (laughs) 26X. It's such a shocking statistic. And Scott, to put a bow on this, at this point, over at Sportico, we've done NFL valuations, we've done NBA valuations, we've done MLB valuations, now we've done European soccer, outside of maybe a few other, sorry, we've done English soccer, outside of a few other European soccer clubs. At this point, I think we, we, we pretty much have a list of the most valuable franchises in the world right now, in the sports world. The Yankees- Hold on, before you go ahead with that though, yeah. wait, 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 before you go ahead with that though, I, I feel the need to put the asterisk, just in case Roger Goodell is listening or Brian Rolap that our NFL valuations were done prior to the new media deals. So there will be a significant, if we were to do them again, there would be a significant bump for the likes of Cowboys, Giants, 49ers, all of them actually, but the correct. So at the top, at least right now, and with that, with that caveat, you just mentioned on the Cowboys, the Yankees are number one, 6.75 billion. The Cowboys right behind them, 6.43 billion. They are, there are only three teams in the $5 billion range. They're all NBA teams. It's a pretty diverse group when you look at this. Our top 10, and again, this does not include the Spanish soccer giants. Uh, there is, by my count, four baseball teams, two soccer clubs, two NFL clubs, and three NBA teams. Oh, interesting mix. Uh, I, I would have expected probably more NFL clubs in there and fewer of some of the others, but there we go. Uh, let's go to college. Guess what? You know, all those schools that said they were cutting sports, even one that said, you know, this is not for, uh, for change. What was it? Uh, Dan Radakovich, the uh, AD at Clemson. Clemson. Yeah. In his statement, when they cut their sports, the men's track and field and cross country, quote, the decision is final. Well, guess what? It was less than final. (laughs) It was not so final. (laughs) Maybe that decision was final for the time being. But it wasn't final, final, because go ahead and fill in the blank. Yeah, so in the past two weeks or so, we've, we've seen a number of schools. You mentioned Clemson there, which tried to eliminate its men's cross-country and track programs. There was a big groundswell. There were some lawsuits. They announced last week men's track program coming back. Uh, and Stanford is probably the biggest example of this. If you remember, Scott, back in July, Stanford announced it was eliminating 11 varsity sports uh, and those all 11 uh, of Can those... we hold off on Stanford though? Because can we hold off on Stanford? I, sure. Let's talk Clemson first because there's a bigger picture question about Stanford I want to get to. But yep. uh, on the Clemson one, and Dan Libet wrote this story, and, and it's quite convoluted. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, it's hard to do on the podcast, but it wasn't just about the 23 male runners. I mean, they, the female athletes also brought pressure because they were saying if those coaches, they shared coaches, the men's and women's team shared coaches. It's an odd setup. Uh, not odd. It's just not a popular setup in college sports. Whereas if those teams were eliminated and the coaches lost, the women were saying, Hey, we get dinged also. And it's, it may be a title nine problem because we don't have the same resources then because we lost our coaches. So there were so many different avenues where the pressure came against Clemson. It wasn't just the teams being affected saying, Hey, 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 this isn't fair. It went far beyond that. Yeah, and you're right. And it ended up kind of as you're alluding to, it ended up being a Title IX challenge from lawyers representing the the men's teams who said that losing these programs would actually hurt the would throw Clemson out of balance from Title IX from a from a from an access to to, to sports for men 
standpoint, and also a Title IX challenge from lawyers representing the women's side, as you just described, who were also worried about the, the coaches they share and what it might mean for them. Uh, and, and this is, uh, to, to some degree, a story that's happening on campuses all around the country, Scott. The, the the lawyer and the legal challenges to these schools eliminating programs have hit a new level. And we're seeing a lot of schools, and, and, and Stanford isn't directly in line with this, but, but Clemson certainly is. We're seeing a lot of schools that in the face of those legal challenges are reversing their decisions. Uh, William & Mary, Dartmouth, Brown, just a few off the top of my head of other programs that have said, hey, financially, we just can't afford these programs. And then because lawyers have stepped in, primarily because of Title IX challenges, have then said, you know what, we're going to figure out a way uh, to reverse this and, and, and a way to keep these, these things on board. Okay, now switching out to California and Stanford, the, the pressure was all around. I mean, the coaches, some of the athletes were taking matters into their own hands. Like Some of the athletes were covering up the Stanford logo uh, during championships in protest of all this. And Stanford cut 11 varsity sports. They did this back in July. And they did it because of a projected budget shortfall of about 70 million bucks over the next three years, right? And they said that the school would save about 200 million by taking the steps. So now they say, and of course, you know, there was pandemic, we get it. And people were wondering how many pandemic fueled cuts were going to be made. But we're, we're hopefully near the end of that or toward the end of that. And the school all of a sudden says, whoa, wait a minute. You know what? We have an improved financial outlook here. And we're really optimistic about our fundraising. And, you know, we don't need to cut those sports at all. Um, and here's the part I want to talk about. And it, if it allows me to flex my, my inner Malcolm Gladwell here, because if you listen mm-hmm. to Gladwell's podcast, th- there's a couple of good ones about endowments to schools, right? And Stanford's endowment is about 26 billion, I'm going to say it again, 26 billion with a B dollars. And let's keep in mind also, universities do not get taxed on gains they make off of their endowments. That's a nice little perk they have, right? How much cash does that endowment spit off every year? And are are they saying we can't use it for sports? This should only be done for academics. I don't know, but I'm a little, I'm a little crazy wondering, as Malcolm Gladwell does also, why would anybody in their right mind ever donate to Stanford when the money can be put to such better use elsewhere? I'll leave it up to you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. And, and certainly when, when this announcement was made back in July, a lot of the conversations I was having across college sports were about this exact thing. If, if Stanford, with, a, with an endowment of $25 billion, says it can't afford to offer women's uh, field hockey, how can Akron or how can the University of how can any other school that doesn't have that financial backing think it can afford this? Turns out, obviously, that, that Stanford either miscalculated or, or something about their decision they've decided to reverse because all those all those sports are coming back. Uh, but the endowment one is a really interesting question, Scott, because a lot of that money, as you know, certainly is tied into things that athletics can't access. Some of that some of that money is athletics endowments. And a lot of them are, there were endowed programs and, and endowed coaching positions that were part of the cuts that Stanford had. And then it opened up a whole kind of can of worms about if we eliminate women's swimming, but the women's swimming coach uh, is an endowed position, do we as the university get access to that money to divert it to something else in the athletic department? Does that money go back to the, the donor who originally made it? I'm sure there were a lot of interesting conversations about donors, their endowments, the, the way that they have endowed chairs, endowed coaches, uh, et cetera. 
but it's certainly, and, and you mentioned Paging Stanford. Daniel Libet. <laughs> you mentioned Stanford uh, saying that their financial outlook has changed. It's the same thing that Clemson said formally when it brought back its men's track and cross-country programs is that, you know, back in last summer, we were projecting a pretty hefty multi-tens of million dollar uh, budgeting shortfall. And it turns out that it wasn't as bad as we expected. We lost a lot of football ticket sales. We lost some basketball money. But in, but in the grand scheme, it maybe wasn't as bad as as a lot of schools thought. So yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of programs that maybe reverse course. We should also mention, just to talk about lawyers and lawsuits, there were two lawsuits filed in, in recent weeks against Stanford, one of which was a Title IX lawsuit. Now the school says they were on the road to bringing these programs back before those lawsuits got filed. But again, I think that there's there's no question that at least across the NCAA, the, the savviness and, and the way that lawyers are attacking program cuts has changed the entire conversation around what athletic departments want to fund, what they say they can fund, and ultimately how many sports they offer. Yeah, and the group that pressured Stanford is called 36 Sports Strong. That, you know, that was the sort of the, the group that that brought the suits and looked to raise money to uh, to put pressure on Stanford to change their minds. Uh, when I think of Stanford, by the way, yeah, of course, everybody knows the, the high revenue sports like football, basketball. I, I, I get it. But when I think Stanford, I think of the Olympic sports. Like, what is it? The President's Trophy in college? Like the, the, the university that gets the athletic department that wins the most championships or whatever the measure is? Like it's always Stanford. <laughs> they, they win all the time because they have this this kind of great mix of sports that are offered and they're really good. But some of the ones that were cut, it was like fencing, field hockey, lightweight rowing. And you know a little something about lightweight sports, right, Evan? <laughs> Member of the lightweight Princeton football my, team. My, my kin over there, yeah. Yeah, your, your, your kindred spirit over in Stanford. They have lightweight rowing. You have lightweight football. By the way, how many, how many games did you win in your, in your years of lightweight football at Princeton? Uh, zero. Oh, zero wins. Okay, I just yeah. want to make sure that I had that right. <laughs> Sailing, squash, yeah. synchronized swimming. So these are not what people would generally think of as high-revenue sports, but they are sort of the Olympic sports. And that, to me, is always sort of the defining character of Stanford athletics. Like, this is what I think about when I think about Stanford athletics. And they were just saying, okay, we don't need this, or we're just going to get rid of it. So um, good for the school. Uh, yes, the pressure counted. But would you feel secure now as a coach, as an athlete, in these sports going to Stanford? Like, if I'm a coach, do I now go to the school and say, as part of my deal, I need X year guarantee? And even if you cut the sport, I get paid because you tried to do it before. Um, sounds like another foyer for the next contract of one of the coaches in these sports. But, you know, I, I got to have concerns that the commitment to me, my athletes, and the sport itself just isn't there. Yeah, it's interesting. Kind of along those lines, I said there were two lawsuits against Stanford, one of which was a Title IX lawsuit. The second one was a, a essentially, and Mike McCann, I wish he was here to, to, to lay this out directly for me, was essentially a breach of contract lawsuit. And what those students were arguing is that while Stanford behind the scenes was clearly considering eliminating field hockey, swimming, wrestling, sailing, fencing, et cetera, they were actively recruiting athletes to come to the school. And that the illicit, I, I think this is not explicit, but the illicit, the, the promise of, hey, come to Stanford and, and play four years on this team, the promise in that contract that the students signed uh, was actually being undermined by what the, the school was considering doing behind the table. So it's, it's an interesting question about whether that is a, an argument that has legal standing uh, in any capacity. Going back to what you said earlier, Scott, 36 sports, 36 sports strong, 
that is a, it might be the biggest, if it's not, it's one of the biggest athletic departments in the country. For reference, your average pick a big 12 school, they probably offer 16, 17, maybe 18 sports. Uh, Clemson, uh, Stanford is twice as big an athletic department from the offerings. And you're right, this has been something that the university has used in its marketing for a long time. It's been a point of pride. I'm sure it helps them from, from various different diversity standpoints, just the amount of, of, of sports that they offer. Uh, so yes, the, the the idea of offering 36 points is being something that Stanford has taken pride in for a really long time. And at least now it, it, it will be continuing. And if I'm the new Pac-12 commissioner, George Klevikov, you know, I have a Pac-12 nice. network. I'm popular in Asia. I need these Olympic sports, right? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to have swimming and diving and what else was cut? You know, uh, I don't know. What else? I forgot. I, I turned the page already. But uh, <laughs> there is interest globally. Don't just have that myopic view of U.S. television. You know, you own your media rights in full. Now, what are you going to do? How are you going to distribute those media rights? Which schools are you going to promote? Which sports? That could play a big role in sort of an OTT distribution outside of the U.S. We started with soccer. Mr. Novi Williams, want to end with it? Sure, right? Let's do it, yeah. Let, let, news let's and MLS again. Yeah, but let, let's start with Mr. David Blitzer, a partner in Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, owner of the 76ers and Devils. We got wind that Mr. Blitzer, uh, Blackstone executive, is kicking the tires on Real Salt Lake of MLS. So we know he obviously... Uh, has a lot of big-time sports in his portfolio. We also know, due to your reporting, that there are a dozen or so people kicking the tires on Royale. The only name we, we could uncover is David Blitzer, but uh, that is a significant investor and name to be out there. Yeah, it sounds like there's, as you said, there, there's a handful of potential interested parties. Some of them are local to the Salt Lake area. Some of them sound like they're also international, maybe some some international soccer team owners as well. A lot of them have been in uh, Salt Lake and Provo in the past few weeks, touring the facilities, meeting with the owners. Remember, Scott, this is a sale that's now being handled by MLS itself. The, the prior Real Salt Lake owner, Deloy Hansen, was accused of, of making racist remarks. He agreed that he would sell the team. He did not find a buyer originally or, or immediately. And as a result, MLS in January took over the sale. So this is now being run out of the league office, something that we've seen uh, in a few uh, wild circumstances in other leagues. Uh, but th there's certainly interest in Real Salt Lake. In, in the background here, Scott, another thing we wrote in this story that, that certainly turned some heads in the industry, Ryan Smith, the, the local billionaire who recently bought the, the Utah Jazz, he has said in the past that he was interested in buying Real Salt Lake. A number of media reports have tied him as a potential buyer. From what we were told, uh, he has not been in contact uh, with the league about a purchase in, in a number of months dating back to January. So I'm not going to say that Ryan Smith won't be the buyer when everything is, is said and done. But when we talk about a dozen interested parties, people who are in the data room right now, who are looking at the financials, who are taking trips to Utah, he is not part of those conversations as we sit right now in the middle of May. Yeah, to make a parallel, when the Mets were being sold, there were a bunch of people in the data room, and we wrote that Steve Cohen was not one of them, and we know who wound up with that team. A little bit of a difference in that Steve Cohen already owned 8% of the Mets, so he didn't really need some sort of due diligence into the finances of the club because he was already there and knew it. That is not the case with Ryan. Like He's a complete outsider, so you'd think he'd want to at least uh, raise the hood and, and, and take a peek and see uh, when the oil was changed and see how things are. A um, 
Coming on the heels, by the way, of other transactions, Evan. We know Orlando sold not long ago, but also a story we broke. The, the Houston Dynamo and Dash have been sold to real estate developer Ted Siegel, about $400 million. You're starting to see the valuations of these MLS clubs rise. Uh, bought it from Gabriel Brenner Small. Um, uh, he was one of the few Latino owners in, in big-time sports. Uh, invested in the club in 2008. Bought it from AEG in full in 2015. I find it interesting, and you can name some of the folks, but I find it interesting that most of the limited partners that were already there are rolling, as we say in the biz. They're staying in just at reduced levels. Yeah, so th- those those include Oscar De La Hoya, boxing champion, who I believe invested back in 2008 alongside Gabriel James Harden, NBA basketball star, uh, is also one of those in- minority investors that is staying on. Uh, there's another name, Jake, Jake Silverstein Scott, who is who is not staying on. I believe he's exiting as part of this transaction. Uh, but yes, this is one of the biggest media markets in, in the country. I don't know where Houston ranks, but it's certainly top 10. Um, has a big Hispanic population. Obviously, I, I imagine that, that that Ted Siegel, when he thinks about the opportunities here, uh, back when the team was really good in its early years in MLS, uh, they were drawing really well. There were a few years in there where they had 20,000, 20, 22,000 fans on average for home games. That's That's dipped a bit. Um, but I think the, the the bones are there. You can see kind of the path towards Houston being a really good soccer city uh, if the team is humming. Um, and it's good news for MLS as well. You mentioned the Wolf sale also kind of in that 400 to $450 million range. It certainly sounds like it's going to be the same here in Houston and Real Salt Lake. I would imagine, given that that's the stadium, the USL team and the MLS team, I would think they're going to end up kind of somewhere in that in that range as well. So yes, good news for MLS to consistently be getting interest during this economy, uh, no, jokes aside, uh, in the $400 million range. Worth noting that they are soon too due for a new media contract. Let's see where the bidding starts and ends with that. And you know why you come to the Sportacast, Eben? Not only uh, are our jovial banter and kibitz, but you get you get the nuggets that maybe you're just not going to get anywhere else. You ready for this? Yes. You ready? Ted Siegel buying the Houston Dynamo and Dash went to the same high school as Tim Howard. Couple years that. behind Tim Howard, but was sitting on the sideline and would watch one of the best American goalkeepers. Uh, to, to play the game, no, no offense, Shep Messing, uh, to, uh, to, to watch him from the sideline and be like, you know, I may not be able to play that game like that, but maybe one day I'll buy the team. And that's what he did. Good for you, Ted Siegel. Amazing. Yeah, the Tim Howard was one of the first MLS athletes that I ever interacted with. Growing up in New Jersey, he was on the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars, dating myself the Metro a little Stars, bit yep. there. Um, Tab Ramos. He was a, a backup goalie, I believe. He came to a soccer camp that I was at. Was that Tony Mayola? Um, was he the starting goalie of Metro Stars? Tony he Mayola? Might, yeah, he was there at some point. I don't know exactly when Howard got there, what the uh, what the transition was like, but I used to go to games all the time at Giant Stadium. Um, and because I was a goalie, I think Tim Howard probably did a circuit of local New Jersey uh, soccer camps, uh, and I got to meet him way back when. Uh, so I've always had a special spot in my heart for Tim Howard. Lightweight football, winless goalie in soccer. Good to see. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on the Twitter at Soshnick. Social media coordinator, Cora Veltman. Hope your back feels better, Cora. She's really in a bad way right now. But she likes us to say that you can find the show at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will become the Sportico Podcast Network. Hold up. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.